This week's episode of Shot of Spirituality was recorded on Wednesday prior to the Lagba Omer tragedy on Mount Meron in Israel that happened on Thursday night. Our hearts and our prayers are with the families of those affected, both those who were killed and those who were injured. Welcome to Spiniverse. Hi, everybody. It's Parshat and more this week. I'm Rabbi Josh, he, him pronouns, Goucher Hill, Executive Director. My name is Leah, she, her, and I am Goucher Hill Co-President. Hi, my name is Ryan. I use she, her pronouns, and I am Goucher Hillel's Shabbat Committee Co-Chair. All right. We are here close, very close to the end of the book of Leviticus, but we got some more Levitical fun today. Part of this this journey with you guys that I've appreciated is, and I've appreciated you going here with me, is that um, we're going to relate to Torah, to these stories differently based on where we're at, based on like our context and based on um, our values and, you know, where we stand in life and what things are important to us. Um, and so I think it's like, it's kind of cool that we can reread the Torah every year. It'd be one thing if we read the Torah once in our lifetime and then never came back to it, but we have this sort of um, kind of forced repetition that tells us like, no, each year you kind of come around the cycle and go back to a Torah portion and you might have the same take on it and you might have a different take on it. Um, there's something, I don't know, for me that's continuity, but it's also challenging. It also brings up a whole month and a half when we're reading, you know, some challenging material like we've been taking on in Vayikra Leviticus that is not that easy for modern folks to, to access. Um, and I just want to thank you for going there with me because this is not easy material. Um, so, all right. So here we go. Leah, would you read this summary for us, please? Sure. Summary. Laws regulating the lives and sacrifices of priests are presented the set times of the Jewish calendar are named and described the Sabbath, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and the pilgrimage festivals of Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. God commands the Israelites to bring clear olive oil for lighting the sanctuary menorah. The ingredients and placement of the displayed loaves of the sanctuary bread are explained. Laws, laws dealing with profanity, murder, and maiming of others are outlined. I love that they've put murder along with profanity. Like, Oh, yes, very much the same level. Absolutely. How dare <laughs> you say a bad word? It's the, it's the same, not the same, but like, I love that swearing is lumped in with like murder and torture. Yeah, and we're going to go there uh, later today. So hold that thought. But I, I, I think you probably may have something to say about when we get to the part about blasphemy and profanity. All right, so I started with something a little bit lighter on this, uh, this side. We're going to read about um, the Omer. So we are currently in the period between Passover and Shavuot, which is known as the Omer period. Over Jewish history, over the different periods in Jewish history, this period has meant different things. And we'll look at sort of two takes on it right now, the biblical kind of take and a little bit of a rabbinic take. So... Um, Ryan, are you up? I'm sorry, I just lost track. It's okay. 
Um, let's do this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelite people and say to them, when you enter the land that I am giving to you and you reap its harvest, you shall bring the first sheaf of your harvest to the priest. He shall elevate the sheaf before the Lord for acceptance in your, in your behalf. The priest shall elevate it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day that you elevate the sheaf, you shall offer as a burnt offering to the Lord, a lamb of the first year without blemish. The meal offering with it shall be two-tenths of a measure of choice of flour with oil mixed in, an offering by fire of pleasing odor to the Lord, and the liberation, libation with it shall be of wine, a quarter of a hin. Until that very day, until you have brought the offering of your God, you shall eat no bread or parched grain or fresh ears. It is a law for all time throughout the ages in all your settlements. And from the day on which you bring the sheaf of elevation offering, the day after the Sabbath, you shall count off seven weeks. They must be complete. You must count until the day after the seventh week, 50 days. Then you shall bring an offering of new grain to the Lord. Thank you. All right. So this is the Omer period in biblical times. Any summary of what? Okay. So what does that mean? That was a lot. Yeah. How do you basically take that? What's the idea? God is really, you know, particular. Yes. He has some specific tastes. He's pickier than five-year-olds eating vegetables. Definitely true. So, so just to summarize the basics, because there's a lot of specifics, as Ryan said. Basically, here's the idea. It says after the Shabbat, which is very unclear, because we're not talking, we're unclear if they're talking about the Shabbat after Passover or maybe the Yom Tov that might also be sort of uh, informally called Shabbat, which is the first of Passover. You're supposed to bring this offering of the barley sheaf, you know, for 50, for, for, for all of these days. It's unclear actually, do you bring it once? Do you bring it each day? Um, you bring, it seems, seems to be like it's just that day and that until that day, you're not supposed to eat like new grain, grain from the coming years, from this year's harvest. Um, and then you have to count 50 days from that, um, from that offering, which is the first, it actually doesn't say barley, by the way, it says, um, the first sheaf of your harvest. And then it says, you're going to bring an offering of new grain to the Lord. So it's something about, it's definitely agricultural in relation to something. And there's some sacrifices and stuff in there that go in there, but it's agricultural in nature. It doesn't seem to be saying anything specifically, I would say spiritual or that this period is supposed to be mourning or anything like that, which is what we're going to read in a minute from the rabbinic text. So I don't know. I'm just thinking about like putting ourselves back in this society. They have these laws that are picky in particular about grain. What you think is going on? What's that about? Um, I don't really know. I don't have anything to add, but I will say it's parts like these that make it very hard for me to connect with Torah. Like I enjoy studying Torah and I enjoy having these discussions, but it's also very like, I view a lot of these as very, like, unnecessary in a way that I don't enjoy. Like, I don't like all the strings that are attached with showing appreciation. Got it. 
Yeah. I think that kind of makes me, that just made me think back to like weeks and weeks and weeks ago. I think when Beth was here um, and it talked about women wanting to use like their mirrors as, sacri- as like offerings to God and people like being like, no, you shouldn't be able to do that with like, you're only allowed to show your appreciation in a certain way. That's not everyone lives the exact same life. So just kind of, it takes away, I feel like it, it defeats the point. If you're showing appreciation, you're supposed to be doing it in a way that's meaningful to you. And I think it doesn't really make sense how showing appreciation is an expectation or a law because that doesn't mean it's appreciation. It means it's following a rule because like you might appreciate God, but like it means you're not doing this out of, in some ways, not doing it out of the appreciation you have. You're doing it because it's an expectation. Even though you might still have that appreciation, it's not really the same. It, it's just not the same. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, and I think that a lot of the laws that are in Leviticus don't really make it down to our day for practical reasons. And also because I think the rabbis who, who interpreted Judaism, whether they would say it out loud or not, had somewhat of the same attitude towards some of the ideas in these laws. It was too specific. It's too like bound in terms of determining exact human behavior. Like, you know, it's, we're not programmed robots. Um, meant to be obeying things exactly in this way. And it's also not clear what the intent behind this is. So what Omer, we call the Omer period, that means literally the sheaf of grain, but there's almost nothing we do during the Omer right now that has anything to do with sheaves of grain. So it's about to be Lagba Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer this Friday. Um, so we're just going to read a little piece. This is from Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch is the Jewish code of law. One version of it, a sort of uh, I guess a reader's digest of the Jewish code of law, though it's certainly big enough, um, that's um, written in the 16th century. And it talks about not only biblical laws and rabbinic laws, but also like customs, certain customs that have come to be known as to have like quasi law status in different areas. And this is where you get things like, you know, Sephardim do this and Ashkenazim do that kind of thing, like on Passover in terms of what, who would eat what. So um, we're going to read about a the custom during the Omer here, Leah, if you don't mind. Oh, me? Yep. Okay. It is customary not to get married between Pesach and Shavuot until Lagba Omer, the 33rd day, because during that time, the students of Rabbi Akiva died. However, to do Erusin and Kedushin um, engagement and betrothal is okay. And even for Nisuin marriage, if someone did so, we do not punish them. Rima, however, from Lagba Omer onwards, all this is permitted. Okay. So this is a, without getting into a lot of the text, this is a short way of referring to the idea that in modern times, there's this sort of quasi mourning period during the Omer that some people don't shave during the Omer. And they, like they said, they don't have weddings. Um, some people will not listen to music during the Omer. Um, and 
it seems to go back to this period during which Rabbi Akiva's students died. Um, and it's not clear if they died because of illness, though that seems to be what the Midrash says, or Rabbi Akiva and his students were also subject to persecution by the Romans. Um, and if that's part of what we're actually trying to mourn here too. But it doesn't say anything really about the barley harvest, um, which is just interesting. When you guys, if, if you've heard of Lagba Omer, any thoughts? That, what have you heard about Lagba Omer? What do you do on Lagba Omer? What's it all about? We... I was about to say set things on fire, but we just like host little fires and we count the Omer. Um, we eat a lot of funny, yummy treats, I think. Yep. Um, yeah. We got some s'mores on campus, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Bonfires. Some people used to do archery contests too, um, which is interesting. But it seems to be that Lagba Omer was also supposed to be the day that um, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who was a contemporary of Rabbi Akiva, um, was born. And he's sort of this mystical figure, even though he's like, he's a rabbi in the time of the Mishnah, but much later he ends up being the, like, basically the author, people say he's the author of the Zohar, which is like the Jewish the first main work of Kabbalah. So there's this kind of like mystical connection to this period too, that's a little bit hazy and Rabbi um, Shimon Bar Yochai was also subject to the same persecution from the Romans. So he and his son hid in a cave for many years and studied Torah. And um, so the, uh, some of the bonfire stuff and the, the bows and arrows probably has some relationship to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, like studying Torah in the wild. I think, you know, yeshiva in a cave. Um, so yeah. <laughs> um, and it's a fun holiday. I think it's a holiday that like probably needs, you know, if there's any holiday that needs a, a comeback and, you know, more, cause who doesn't love to sit around a bonfire, sing some songs and uh, have some yummy treats. Right. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. We're moving on to the, to the uh, more controversial part of this portion that we're looking at today, which is the story of the blasphemer. Okay. I'm going to read this one. So it's interesting because it actually, it's in the middle of giving laws and then it just sort of gives this story that also plays into a lot. There came out among the Israelites, one whose mother was Israelite and one whose father was Egyptian. And a fight broke out in the camp between that half Israelite and a certain Israelite. The son of the Israelite woman pronounced the, in the name, it's supposed to be God's name in blasphemy and he was brought to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shlomit, the daughter of Divri of the tribe of Dan. And he was placed in custody until the decision of the Lord should be made clear to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the blasphemer outside the camp and let all who are within hearing lay their hands upon his head and let the whole community stone him. And to the Israelite people speak thus, anyone who blasphemes his God shall bear his guilt. And if he pronounces, also pronounces the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. The whole community shall stone him, stranger or citizen, if he has thus pronounced the name, he shall be put to death. All right. You know, that's, that's fun. Um, <laughs> so obviously like, you know, I would say a fairly problematic text. What are we talking about here is, is a question. Like what did this person actually do? So the, the fight broke out between the half Israelite and the Israelite because the Israelite son was blasphemous. So we're talking about two men that are arguing with each other, yeah. one of whom had a, a 
Israelite mother, but a non-Israelite father. Right. That's the one we're talking that's about funny. that does the blaspheming. And then there seems like there's this sort of random other guy that's thrown in at the end of the sentence that says a certain Israelite, which is weird. Even the Hebrew <laughs> seems to say, the Hebrew actually says ben ha-Yisraelit. That means the, do- the son of the Israelite woman and an Israelite man. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's hard to get the story straight just in the beginning, but... Yeah. So there's a big question, like, why? Why would there be, why would, why blasphemy? Why, why death? And Ryan, you pointed to this at the beginning, like, you know, putting blasphemy as if it's like murder and this whole idea, the whole community stoning this person to death feels fairly brutal. I mean, maybe that's a nice word for it. I mean, are we surprised? Because God for other similar things has been like, you know what, just wipe them all out. So like, we really not surprised. No. <laughs> exactly. Love we to be not. pleasantly surprised sometimes, you know. Um, we had all that good feel-good stuff last week. <laughs> um, yeah, and I included the Monty Python video. I don't know if any of you guys looked at that, but, you know, um, there's, a, there's a clip from Life of Brian where uh, this, this sort of plays out, and uh, it, it goes – it's funny uh, because in the end of the day, the priest is the one who gets it, not the blasphemer. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, so, okay. So I'm just going to move on to sort of the Midrash piece of this to try and ex- see how the rabbis explain it because they are obviously disturbed with this too. So one is a halachic Midrash from Sifra that basically says this, what is the intent of this? I might think because it is written and he who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall die, that he's killed only if he curses the ineffable name, i.e. like says the tetragrammaton, that's yud heh vav sort of the unpronounceable name of God. Whence is the same derived for all the epithets of his name, like Elohim, Adonai, those other things. It is therefore written if he curses God, an epithet for his name. These are the words of Rabbi Meir. That means it's a minority opinion. But the sages say, Cursing the name itself is punishable by death, whereas cursing through an epithet is a transgression of an exhortation. So basically, if you say, oh, my God, you're not going to get stoned to death. Um, Even if you say, oh, my Elohim, you're not going to get stoned to death. Um, You know, but if you use the ineffable name of God, which is not known to us and we don't know how to pronounce it and only the high priest would know it in those days, then. So the rabbis are trying, in a sense, to do something to limit the actual applicability of this law because they're really perturbed by it. That's one take on it. Let me stop there for your comments. Um, okay. I don't know. Like, I think for a religion that sort of prides itself on questioning learning and challenging knowledge or even like you know challenging god it's really i don't again i don't like that there are strings attached in this in this particular way where it's like if you disagree with me in the wrong way i'm gonna smite you yeah right but it's not really in this one it's not disagree disagreeing with a point it's like using the name a certain way right correct that's which is sort of goes back to the ten commandments too it says don't take the name of the lord in vain it's not clear exactly what that means like are you using it in a way where you're just throwing god's name into a sentence or is it that you're saying like you know 
damn, you know, God's name or something like that in a negative way to God, God's self. I guess that's sort of in, up for discussion here. Um, yeah, but I think what is even implied by that, and this is where I'd affirm what you're saying, Ryan, is that using God's name in that way does, um, you know, show disagreement or, you know, discord with God. And yeah, that could be, that's a problem here too, in some way. All right. So we're going to look at a, a different Midrash that tries to fill in the backstory about this particular character to explain what's going on. Um, all right. There's a lot of, I'm going to read this one if that's all right. Now there went out the son of an Israelite woman whose father was Egyptian. From where did he go out? Rabbi Chia Bar Abba said he went out from the Parsha on genealogies. So it's saying basically like the, the going out is like a, a, it's metaphoric. Like he actually read some other place in the Torah and, about genealogy and started to do, try and figure out where he should be. When he came to pitch his tent in the camp of Dan, they rejected him. Um, his mother, if you might remember, was from the tribe of Dan. Now they said to him, you have an Egyptian father, but it is written each with his standard under the banners of their father's houses and not of their mother's houses. Immediately, he began to utter the name of God and curse it. Rabbi Levi said he was clearly a bastard. <laughs> um, okay, so what does that mean, a bastard? In the, in the definition of the Torah, that means like that his mother was married to someone else at the time that, his, that he was conceived. How so? Taskmasters were from Egypt, and the officers were from Israel. So we're rewinding to basically during the period of slavery here for a moment. The taskmaster was in charge of 10 officers, and the officer was in charge of 10 Israelites. Thus, it turned out that the taskmaster was in charge of 110 Israelites. On one occasion, a taskmaster met an officer. He said to him, go gather your groups of 10. When he had gone, he entered his house and sullied Shlomit, the officer's wife. So he raped her. When the husband returned, he found him leaving the house. When the taskmaster knew that her husband noticed him, he beat him every day and said to him, toil properly, toil properly. The Holy Spirit was kindled in Moses. He raised his eyes to the sky. He said, was it not enough for this wicked man to rape his wife, but that he should return and beat him? Immediately, according to Exodus 2.12, he smote the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The Holy One, blessed be he, said, in this world, you are delivered through the sins into the hands of nations of the world. However, in the world to come, Kings shall be your guardians, their ladies, your wet nurses. They shall bow down before you, nose to the ground, and lick the dust of your feet. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Those who trust me shall not be ashamed. That's a pretty full story. All right. <laughs> so it's connecting this person, the, the parentage of this person, to that story about Moses, which you might remember from like Prince of Egypt, where Moses sees a taskmaster, an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave and kills him and buries him in the sand. Um, which is, you know, problematic on Moses's behalf. So, I don't know. What's your take on that attempted explanation here? Mm, I don't know. Sometimes, like, I think sometimes it almost makes it worse when you try to explain away bad things mm -hmm. and it sort of starts to sound like justification mm -hmm. um, and not in every case, but justification can tend to lead to 
a comfort or a desire to do said bad action again. Again, that's like not all the time. That's just like something that can happen, but I don't know. I think some things just need to be acknowledged that they were bad then, they're bad now, and putting a positive spin on it, at least for me, doesn't really make me happy. Yeah, I don't even think they're trying to put a positive spin on it here. I think that it, it they definitely made the story more kind of disturbing in a way. And in some ways, what it sort of points to, and I'm not sure the rabbis would have had the words for this, is just inter- effects of intergenerational trauma. You know, and we know this, you know, from a psychological standpoint, to be real, that, um, you know, people do carry trauma of from one generation to another within families. Um, and it's certain it seems kind of like that's what they're trying to talk about in terms of this person and their behavior. And um, but it's, you know, it's not clear if they're being judged. Well, OK, maybe it is clear they are being judged. <laughs> um but is it their fault? I think, you know, is a question for us to say, um, if for this person who blasphemed, you know, does it really do any good for us to explain, well, here's what happened with his parents. Um, I'm still thinking, so if somebody else would like to speak, I... Yeah, this portion, it's a challenging one. I'm not going to lie. Um, I, I think part of what I would say is also about, like, Moses coming back in the story. And if there's anyone who... Hmm, I mean, Moses is a complicated figure. Like Moses, you know, Moses's identity obviously is complicated, but also Moses's actions. Um, you know, sometimes it seems like Moses is, is asking for God's mercy. And sometimes it, it seems like Moses is even more angry and um, impulsive than God's willing to be in a particular situation. Um, and in what way do we kind of emulate or, you know, see Moses as an anti-hero or a cautionary example? Well, this case is, this example is pretty different from a lot of the, like, I, this isn't like, oh, I feel like being like Moses being impulsive and bad makes it sound like you're saying like someone took Moses's chips without asking and Moses beat them up. Like that's an impulsive bad thing to do. I'd say this is this is rather different. Okay, um, good point. So was Moses Moses being bad and impulsive? More like Moses trying to be protective um, to against someone who was abusing their power and harming someone unjustly. Um, I think that's rather different from like when they built the golden calf and God wanted to wipe everyone out. I'd say that that's rather different. There are things that make sense to compare. And then they're like, in terms of them both doing these things, but like you have to look at it situationally. 
Okay. Yeah. I have a little bit of sympathy for Moses. He's a very, like, problematic figure, but you kind of have to think about how his whole, like, his origin story, if you will. Like, he was, like, sent down the river, picked up by this family, found out, like, he was, like, like a Hebrew, like, born of slaves, and then he, like, kills the taskmaster, finally. Not finally, like, murder is bad, obviously, but, like, something he does something and then he leaves and then god comes to him and he's like hey you've already gone through heck i'm gonna make you face your family the pharaoh and be like let my people go or i will rain hellfire down on you and then moses is like what okay and god's like do as i say And then Moses just constantly kind of has to look at God being like, I want to wipe out all of these people. Hmm. Moses is in a tough situation. Moses really. All the people are in a tough situation. I don't know. Something that's always confused me is you have Moses who grew up as part of like the Egyptian royal family. And like probably was around many of the Jewish people when they were slaves as a member of this royal family that they were supposed that were part of who were keeping the Jews as slaves. And then all of a sudden he everyone's like, oh, Moses is your hero now when like he likely did take part in the mistreatment of the Jews when he was part of the Egyptian royal family. Hmm. We skip over that whole chunk. That's a good like, point. It's not, ta- it, it's not written about. Um I'm sure it is written about, but not like in the Torah. Um, So it's more, I think there are some things that the Torah makes really, really complicated or overcomplicates things that might not need to be as complicated. And there are things that the Torah oversimplifies or jumps over to make things go more smoothly. Mm. So where does this one fit in coming back to our example here for you? for you guys um i think this one i don't know i just it doesn't make sense to me i don't get why they're suddenly giving us this whole whole backstory for when this person said like two words and they were blasphemous and got in trouble and like got stoned or whatever and now they're giving us this whole like backstory so that's the Midrash. Um, yeah. So some of that's also c- context of what Midrash is about. Midrash yeah, yeah. basically is, it's, it is filling in the gaps in the Torah narratively and sometimes creatively. And, you know, sometimes it's not meaning to smooth it over or make it better. It's just trying to like add more to the story. Um, and sometimes it's actually sort of an exercise of making connections sometimes when they're not really obviously there. And the rabbis do that sometimes by based on, language that might connect one place to another or um here they they're seeing you know this this person doesn't have this person has this interesting like lack of a backstory and then we didn't know what happened with moses and that guy back then so let's kind of connect those stories this isn't really the person's backstory like the person who's being talked about in the portion wasn't even born yet like it it tells us about that person's family which can be important right but like I don't know. I don't see how this story really gives us insight into the behavior of this person. Cause in the story, it's not like, and then the 
Israelite man treated this child badly or something like that. Like, it doesn't really talk about it. Right. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't. And that's something it leaves out. Like, it would make sense if it was like, because the child wasn't his, he was treated, he treated the child badly and that made the child have this resentment or something like that so but it's giving us the background but not in a way that it can be applied to the the story in the torah itself at least that's how it comes across to me right which is still problematic and interestingly back to your point about moses's lack of impulsivity in this case moses doesn't condemn this person actually moses says we're gonna wait until god says what god should do um and just like you guys are saying, you know, Moses is, has to deal with a fairly harsh decree in this case, um, not only for this person, but for other blasphemers in the future, which is challenging. And it's another place where I think what I'm really challenged by in Leviticus is this very top-down, harsh attitude, like don't mess with the order of things, because if you do, really bad things will happen to you. And I, you know, that it's a it's it's a place where when I read this too, it's very hard to like look at such a, an attitude as a holy text because it's so counter to my own values, you know. So Torah, complicated. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you. Uh, next week, Bihar Basukutai, and we're going to have a special uh, episode during our Taste of Hillel annual meeting. Have a great week, everybody. Spiniverse is a production of Goucher Hillel. If you'd like to look at the text that we've been studying today, take a look at the link in our episode description. Have a wonderful week.